What gets you out of bed in the morning? I contemplated this a couple of mornings this week as I leaned over and turned off my alarm and lay in bed, feeling tired and sluggish. And here are some of the typical thoughts that went through my head. Why do I feel so worn out after sleeping all night? Oh good, the heat has come on. I'll just lie here for a bit until the house is nice and warm. Oh dear, the boys are up and they're full of energy as always. I wonder how long I can lay here before they make too much noise and start annoying Charlotte and Tracy. Man, I've got so much to do today. Maybe I should just stay here, rest a little bit more and then I'll work later tonight. Or maybe I should check my email on my phone so I know what I need to do today. Oh, here comes Toby to jump on me. And Tracy's already gotten him dressed, so I can't send him away to do that. What? You want breakfast, Toby? Okay, I'm getting up. Don't climb on me. I'm getting up. That's how I got up at least three times this week. <laughs> what gets you out of bed? What gets you up and going each day? What drives you and motivates you? Let me ask an even pointier question. What motivates you to serve as a Christian? I mentioned last week that we're having an extended time of reflecting on our church's vision and commitments this year. We want to see 10% of the city of Darabin deeply satisfied in knowing and serving Jesus. We're going to spend many weeks thinking about how we can achieve this together next year as God works through us. And a key part of helping people to know and serve Jesus is about what we each do in service of our church. And so I ask again, what motivates you to serve as a Christian? Often we might feel like we'd just rather stay in bed and let someone else do the serving. We might feel that we're not good enough or that no one really cares about what we do. Or we're just too tired, worn out, busy to serve. So it's my prayer that studying Romans 1, verses 8 to 17 today, will help you to get up and get on with serving our church and serving those around us who don't know Jesus yet. And a key part of this is understanding what should be at the centre of our serving. What will motivate us? And what we're going to see is that Paul models God-centred ministry. He reveals what motivates him, what drives him, what gets him out of bed each day. So let's get stuck into it. And our first point is that Paul serves God and his gospel. We see this clearly in verse 9. Have a look. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you. So Paul serves God from within his inner being. Even though we see in verse 1 that Paul was called and set apart by Jesus, this was a, a task in ministry that he was given, it's actually a service that he's wholeheartedly committed to. He wants to do it. And we see other clues in verses 8 to 10 that Paul's service is deeply God-centered. In verse 8, he, give thank, he gives thanks to God for the reputation that the Roman Christians have. And this is because he knows that it's God who gives the gift of faith and grows it in people. In verse 9, he prays to God about the Romans because, well, God is the one who brings about the power to change people. Uh, and in verse 10, he prays that God would open the way for him to visit them because he knows that God is ultimately in control of all events. Paul serves God because God is the master who rules over the whole world, who rules over events, who rules over people. 
He is the one who makes Paul's ministry effective and fruitful. He is the one who determines where Paul will minister and who Paul will minister to. Paul's ministry is God-centered. And this should be true of our ministry too, of our serving. When we serve as Christians, we should realize that it's God's work we're doing, not our own. And serving God is a great blessing and joy because there is no one greater that you can serve. Now, Paul is also a servant of God's gospel. It's clear in verses 1 and 9. The preaching of the gospel is what Paul does in service of God. Let's just jump down to verses 16 and 17 to see why the gospel is so important to the Apostle Paul. I'll read the verses out. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now we'll think later why this issue of being ashamed of the gospel may have actually come up for Paul. But can you see why he's not ashamed of it? Because it's the power of God. It brings salvation to all who believe and it reveals the righteousness of God. And so you can see that the gospel, the good news, is tightly connected to God himself. And so let's just start by saying, well, the gospel is good news. And then we'll think, what's so good about it? Well, the first feature is that it has God's power behind it. In fact, it is the power of God. The good news is what God uses to powerfully work in this world. The second feature reveals what his work is. Salvation. The good news is good because it results in salvation. Now, what exactly are we being saved from? Well, that's what we're going to be exploring over the coming weeks as we work through the rest of this chapter and chapter 2. But you can get a sneak peek in verse 18. It's a little bit scary. God's wrath. God's just judgment is coming. It's already here. And we need saving from it, lest we be condemned and consumed by God's just wrath. The gospel is good news because it contains God's power to save us from the judgment that we deserve. And the third feature of the good news explains how it is that we are saved. By the righteousness of God. Now that's a tricky uh, phrase there, confusing concept. So we're going to park here for a few minutes and think about this idea of righteousness. Now we tend to think of righteousness as moral perfection or worthy behaviour, being good. Perhaps even keeping God's law. Now those are all certainly part of what righteousness is. But in the biblical understanding of this word, righteousness cannot be separated from a relationship with God. So here's one possible definition. Righteousness is about meeting the requirements of a right relationship. And when it comes to God, well, what does he expect of us so as to have a right relationship with him? We need to love him and obey him. But God knows that we can't do this on our own. And so he extends his own righteousness to believers. He treats them as if they are righteous, as if they have kept up their side of the relationship. 
He actually holds up both sides of the relationship himself so that believers can be right with him. Now, it's okay if you don't fully get this because we're going to explore this concept in future sermons. So we've defined righteousness, one, one definition, but how does the gospel reveal the righteousness of God? We've seen your outline. I've listed three common ways this is understood. What is the righteousness of God? An attribute of God, an activity of God, or a status given by God? And people tend to want to pick between the three of these, but I think we can say all three are revealed in the gospel because all three of them are linked. God has the attribute of righteousness, as in he is righteous, and the gospel reveals this. The gospel reveals that he is perfect, and that's why sinners can't remain in his presence. He will and must judge because he is righteous. The righteousness of God is also a description of his activity. He does what is right. He acts justly. And in the gospel, we see this righteousness. We start to understand it when we, we understand the content of the gospel, that Jesus, God's son, he paid for the sins of the world when he died on the cross so that the justice of God could be satisfied, so that the scales could be balanced, so that the wrongs are paid for. And so at the cross, God created a way to save unrighteous humans while maintaining and demonstrating his own righteousness. And finally, the righteousness of God is the status that he shares with those who trust in Jesus. Now do you see in verse 17, Paul says that this righteousness of God is by faith from first to last. Now that wouldn't make sense if we're just talking about God being righteous. You don't need faith to be able to understand that God is righteous. We're not just witnessing his righteousness, something else is going on. It's actually by faith that we receive God's righteousness. It's extended to us. He shares it with us. The status that we have changes. And we receive that by faith. Faith in the Jesus who was crucified and who has risen. Who is our saviour. So think about it this way. The righteous God acts righteously to meet the right requirements of a right relationship on our behalf so that we can be declared righteous. Now, it's okay if you don't fully understand that because we are going to keep understanding, exploring this, studying this as we continue through Romans. This is just a bit of a, a primer, an appetizer for what's to come. But here's the important idea to take away. Paul is a servant of God. There's no one greater you can serve. Paul serves God and he wants people to know this majestic, holy, perfect, good, loving, wise, kind, powerful, interesting, beautiful God. And the only way that people can know God is through believing the gospel. We must trust the good news that Jesus has died and risen for us so that we can be in a right relationship with God. And so this is why as a servant of God, Paul is also a servant of the gospel. And he can serve confidently because it's the power of God for the salvation for all who believe. So Paul is serving God and he's serving the gospel, but his service is also directed towards people. And so we're going to see that 
Paul offered his service so that people could know God better. So next major point is that Paul serves Gentiles so they can know God. We're actually going to work backwards through our passage. So we're going to look at verses 11 to 13 soon. But now, let's hone in on verses 14 and 15. I'll read them out. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Now Paul is spelling out that he's been set apart as a missionary to the Gentiles. And when he says non-Greeks, he doesn't mean Jews, he means non-Greek Gentiles. The word that Paul actually uses here is barbarois, from which we get the word barbarians. It's actually a derogatory term that the Greeks would use for other people who didn't speak Greek. Because all they heard was these people babbling, it sounded like ba, 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 ba. And so they're the babbling barbarians. Now, Paul hasn't chosen this word so he can be rude to these non-Greek Gentiles. He's actually chosen these words because even though he's writing to the Romans, who would have mostly been Greek speakers, he wants them to know that he's not just obligated to those who have embraced Greek culture, he's also obligated to other non-Jews, to all of the Gentiles, even those people who might seem barbaric and uncultured to the Romans. I believe this is what he means by the words, both to the wise and the foolish. See, the Greeks consider themselves to be wise and the barbarians to be foolish. And Paul says he doesn't care what categories Gentiles might use to distinguish themselves from others. He's obligated to them all. He wants to talk about Jesus to them all. And this obligation of Paul's has come from God himself. We see in verse 5, that's why he was called to be an apostle to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Now you can read in Acts chapter 9 about when Paul was set apart for this work, when Jesus himself sent him to the Gentiles. And this is important. See, it wasn't Paul's idea to go to the Gentiles. As a faithful Jew, he would have lived his whole life doing his best to avoid non-Jews. In fact, Paul was a Pharisee. And we learn in the New Testament that the Pharisees viewed Gentiles as unclean and just the thought of spending time with non-Jews, with Gentiles, would have been abhorrent. And so this is important information because it reminds us that Paul certainly didn't choose this mission himself. He didn't choose to go to the Gentiles on his own initiative. It's not as if young Paul or Saul... As a young kid, as a young man, longed to be a Greek. You know, he loved their culture and he just wished he could break away from his Judaism and fully embrace Greek culture. I don't think that's the case. I mean, it's even unlikely that as a young man he had a deep passion to reach out to the Gentiles to win them over to Judaism. It's possible, but it's unlikely. No, he went to the Gentiles because he was obligated to. He was sent by God, in fact, because he loved God. A similar principle was displayed in the life of Hudson Taylor. You'll see we'll have a photo come up on the screen behind us. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to mainland China in the 1800s. He spent 51 years there. He learned about their culture. He even dressed like them. 
He learned various dialects of Chinese so he could teach them the Bible in their own language. He cared for the people. He even opposed the opium trade. And once, someone said something like this to him. You must really love the Chinese people to have given your life to them in this way. And Hudson's reply was, No, not because I loved the Chinese, but because I loved God. That's really powerful, isn't it? What drove him was a love of God. And it's the same as Paul. He went to the Gentiles because he loved God. We know that Paul was actually well-educated. He would have been well-read in Greek culture and literature. But we don't actually know what he thought of their customs and their food. We know that he certainly hated their idolatry. But he loved them and shared the gospel with them because he loved God. He loved Jesus, who had given him sight so as to see the truth of God and his glorious gospel. Okay, we can take the slide down now. One last point on this. Paul was a cheerful servant of God. This enabled him to preach the gospel, even though there was pressure on him to remain silent. Do you notice in verse 16 that Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel? That's because many people were ashamed of it. They tried to make Paul be ashamed of it. To the wise Greeks in Rome, it would have seemed like foolishness. I mean, Paul's saviour was a crucified peasant. Paul's lord is a man who was beaten up by the Romans and killed. Paul's king demands weakness and humility and service. What a joke. What an embarrassment. And perhaps even many unbelieving Jews thought the gospel was something that Paul should be ashamed of. Now here's one of their most promising Pharisees. The most promising Pharisees of his generation and he's turned his back on the law. He's turned his back on the traditions of the fathers and he's run after this Jesus guy who ate with sinners and tax collectors. What a traitor. What an embarrassment. Paul should be ashamed of this gospel. Because look what it's made him do. But Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. Because he's experienced its power firsthand. And he knows it's the only way that God has provided for people to be made right with their creator. People may laugh, people may mock, people may attack, but that would not change the truth of the gospel. And so Paul would never be ashamed of it. And so Paul served the Gentiles so that they could know God. The next major point I want us to think about is that Paul also serves Christians so that they can know God better. Let's now look at verses 11 to 13. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. Paul had a great love and joy in seeing people come to faith. We know that Paul didn't plant the church in Rome. In fact, he'd never even been to Rome. And so in verse 8, when he gives thanks to God for their faith, it's not because he's thanking God for using him to save them. Paul's just happy that people are trusting in Jesus and he gives thanks to God for that. 
No matter where in the world they are, Christians are a source of joy to Paul. And so this gives shape to Paul's identity as a servant of Christians. So he doesn't just want to serve those who don't know Jesus yet. He wants to serve those who are already believers. In verse 11, he wants to impart a spiritual gift to the Christians in Rome to make them strong. Now, some people think this might be a special charismatic gift that he was going to give to them, maybe a special word from God he was going to give them. But I think verse 12 makes it clear that it's really about strengthening their faith. What greater gift could there be than having stronger faith, trusting in Jesus more? And Paul has wanted many times to visit them, but so far has been prevented. And so he expresses his wish to go to Rome and to serve them. In verse 13, he says he wants to have a harvest among them. And Paul mostly means seeing Gentile unbelievers come to faith in Jesus. But it's also possible that part of what he means is that he'll strengthen the faith of the Christians in the church. You actually read in different parts of the book of Acts that Paul returned to churches that he had planted and he would teach them again, continue to disciple them so that they could deepen their faith and grow. This was part of his harvest, part of his calling as a servant of the gospel. He was not only calling Gentiles to repentance, but also discipling them so he could present them mature in Christ. He was laboring towards the goal of verse 5, calling the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And this would benefit Paul himself. Have a look again at verse 12. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. That spiritual gift that Paul wanted to give them involved mutual encouragement. You know, perhaps as Paul finished verse 11, that, that sentence there, he got the sense that maybe he sounded a bit one-sided, you know. The great mighty Paul is going to journey to Rome and help these poor little Christians who don't really know how to do the whole Christian thing. And so Paul clarifies that he expects to be strengthened by them too. It's a two-way street. This actually fits with one of his key purposes in writing this letter. I'm going to read out from chapter 15, verse 24. It says this, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. And then in verse 32 he says he hopes to be refreshed in their company. Now, some people think that Paul's being a bit sneaky back in chapter 1, verse 12. You know, they think he's trying to flatter the Romans. You know, oh, of course I need you guys as well, so that they'll actually give him some cash. He doesn't really need any encouragement from them. He just wants their money. But that doesn't really fit with Paul's character, does it? Yes, he does want their support. But Paul was keenly aware of his own need for encouragement. He knew that he needed others to serve him. Many of Paul's letters end with commendations of people who've supported him and even requests for further help. There's a really important principle at play here. Every single Christian is able to offer encouragement to other Christians. No matter what strength of faith or maturity you have, you are able to serve others. Don't underestimate how just a kind or encouraging word can do wonders for a fellow Christian, even your leaders, even your pastors. And so this leads us to our last and final point, which is about applying this to ourselves. 
How might Paul's model encourage you to serve? Now, firstly, I want to say that if you're not a Christian and you're here today, it's great that you're here. I'm glad that you're here. But I am really speaking to Christians at the moment. Uh, But as I am speaking, please hear me carefully. I'm not saying that you have to serve to be saved. You don't have to serve to impress God. We want to be Christians who serve because God has already made us right with him. We're already in relationship with him. Now, if you are a Christian, then I want you to think about your service, your ministry. What do you do? There might be Christian service at home, at work, or at uni. But mostly I want you to think about your service in our church family. And there are lots of ways we can serve. Maybe in a formal ministry team like supper, creche, music, PAAV. Or maybe just chipping in when you see there needs to be an extra bit of help with pack-up. Maybe helping to welcome a visitor who looks a bit lost. Uh, Praying with someone who's struggling. Being an active member of a gospel community. Visiting people who can't make it to church, maybe taking a meal over. Working away in one of our mercy ministries. In whatever you might do, whether it's kind of a formal ministry with structures and rosters or not, I want you to be thinking about what motivates you. What drives you? What gets you out of bed, off the couch, out of your own head so you can serve? As we reflect on Paul's example, I pray that you'll find some new ways that you can be motivated to serve. Let me quickly say, if you are already actively serving and you're doing a great job of that, praise God. I'm not necessarily saying you need to try harder and harder. Keep it up if you're doing good. Uh, And if you're struggling, maybe you're in a tough patch, Maybe life's just really hectic at the moment. Don't let guilt be your motivator. It's okay. Pray that God will help you to rest in him and that you can serve when you're able to. So the first way that Paul's model encourages us is that it motivates us to serve God, who is the loving ruler of all. There is no one greater you can serve than the triune God who has existed eternally as Father, Son and Holy Spirit. He is supreme and his opinion counts the most. We should seek to please him. And it's a privilege to serve him because he saved us and that he wants to use us to help save other people. He wants to use us in his plan for the world. Now, we can never repay the debt that we owe to God. What can we offer for our lives? Nothing. But we can show our love to him, show our gratitude to him by serving him and serving others. Also, in serving God, we remember that he's the ruler who orchestrates all events. This means he gives us opportunities to serve. And so it's up to us to make the most of them. We don't necessarily get to argue with him about whether we're suitably gifted or is this the best area for us to maximize our gifts and our potential. He'll make sure that our serving is fruitful. He'll make sure we're in the right place. He'll work through us even if we serve in weakness with divided hearts and half-hearted efforts. And God loves us too. Even when no one else sees what we're doing, when no one else appreciates what we're doing, God sees, God knows, God cares. And we can rejoice that the work that God does through us, even though it may not be noticed by anyone else, even though it may seem insignificant to the world around us, service of God 
is of eternal significance. God should be at the heart of our ministry. But what does doing God-centered ministry actually look like? Well, it's about people. Paul encourages us to serve people so they can know God. This is the second way that he's a model to us. There is nothing greater in life than seeing someone come to faith in Jesus, to pass from death to life. And we may not actually see the privilege in our own lives. We may not have the privilege of seeing someone become a Christian directly through our words, through our actions. Praise God if that is the case for you, but it may not be the case. But here's the thing. When we serve our church, we're part of the group effort of helping people come to know Jesus. And so whatever you find yourself doing in our church, remember that it's for the benefit of people so they can know God or know God better. Whether it's service before, during or after the church service or even during the week. So it can be easy to lose that people focus. And so we serve for our own glory, our own ego. We're looking for a platform. Or we serve out of habit or routine. We serve just so the leaders will stop nagging us about it. Our enthusiasm wanes. Our standards drop. Do you know what? Something as simple as setting up chairs or filling in a spreadsheet is actually useful. Actually helps people to know God and to know God better. Another point we see from Paul's model is that He expected the Christians in Rome to encourage him. And so don't feel like you're too unskilled or unimportant or uninteresting to be able to serve others. You might be surprised at the ways in which God uses you when you offer a kind word, do a small deed, just plug away at serving. You might be surprised that even the most mature, godly, gifted Christians can actually benefit from your service of them. And the third and final way Paul's model of God-centered ministry might encourage us is to serve the gospel, which is God's power to save. The gospel actually sets the content, the focus and the shape of our serving. If we really want to serve people and help them know God, then we want them to hear and believe the gospel. And so this means if we're involved in a speaking ministry, we actually get to express the gospel. The gospel should actually be in there somewhere, shouldn't it? Uh, But maybe you're not involved in that sort of ministry. Well, then you should consider about how your serving might actually help others who are doing that gospel speaking. You might also consider how our serving might have its focus set by the gospel. It's kind of building on what we said a moment ago. See, we can serve in a way that helps people, that helps those who are helping people to hear the gospel. Take supper, for example. It's an important ministry because it helps people to stick around and have conversations after the church service. And finally, the gospel sets the shape of our serving. Paul was driven by the gospel and so he sought to share it whenever he could. But he was also gripped and transformed by the gospel so that it shaped how he served. If our serving is shaped by the gospel, then it will be gracious and humble towards unbelievers rather than beating them over the head with the Bible. 
we'll be patient and forgiving with the people we serve alongside us, uh, who serve alongside us, even when those people annoy us, even when they do things that are stupid, when they don't follow your instructions, we'll be patient, we'll forbear. We'll be exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit rather than giving the impression that God wants us to work for His favour. And we'll also be bold because we'll be less concerned about how people might feel about us and more concerned about seeing bridges built so that people can enter into new life. Well, that's Paul's example. And I hope you've been encouraged. I hope this might motivate you. The next time you feel too tired, too discouraged, too inadequate, too grumpy to serve, I pray that God would help you. He'd spur you on, help you to realign your motivations. You should pray that God would help you remember that you serve him and that his powerful gospel is behind you. In fact, we should pray now. Let's do that. Father God, we thank and praise you for the wonderfully good news about Jesus who died and rose again for us so that all who have faith in him might be saved from judgment and brought into a right relationship with you. We thank you also that you invite us to serve you by serving others. What a wonderful privilege that you choose to use us in your plan of salvation for this world. Please help us to be humble, obedient servants so that more people might come to know you and come to be deeply satisfied in knowing and serving Jesus. And the next time we lack the motivation to serve, please stir us up by your spirit and remind us of the truth we have learned today. Amen.